Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You know, there are so many compelling stories that have come out of every Olympic Games. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. And welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm okay. I feel like I need to start training. For what? So remember when we start, we talked to Lou Jones, who's done mm-hmm. the photography on so many at the Olympics. And he talked about in the months leading up to Olympics, he would start training. Yes. So I'm feeling like, okay, we're one year out. We're actually now past the one year out mark. Mm -hmm. Technically, we'd sort of be in the the winding down days. And I'm like, I really got to get my training plan together. Yeah, I would agree. Ready for ready for Tokyo. Right. So, you know, what would prepare my throat and my booty (laughs) for this extended sitting and cheering. I'm looking for for training advice for this. All right. Well, you know what I thought when I was watching the Pan Am Games, which I did watch a fair amount of last week and had multiple screens going. So it was like getting that practice in already. I forgot how hard it was. First off, when you're (laughs) like, oh, man, multiple screens, so much happening. But I wondered if we could learn anything from the world of esports. I, I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm wondering if they have any tips or tricks or maybe chess. Okay. Because they sit I on could... there, they have to sit for a long period of time. They have to focus and concentrate. I know that but some of quiet. them, yeah, I know, but some of them are, they, they do, uh, they do train. I have read that chess players train. Okay. Physically do some physical training. So we'll see. Yeah. E-players probably have very good, you know, thumb exercises. Right. Well, the better to scroll. I guess. With I don't know. I myself have been trying to get used to the heat. Not that it's going to help because we're going to go through winter and I'll get cold again and we'll need to work it back up. But I am trying to keep my air conditioner off as much as possible <laughs> in my, in my right. office. This is, this is something we should we should find out. How air conditioned is Japan? I'm pretty sure that they have some 
air conditioning going on. I know when we were there, it was fall. So the weather okay. was already cooling down. But I would imagine they would be air conditioned up. Right. Because this, this summer in Europe has been so record-breaking record heat. And one of the big issues is very few buildings actually have air conditioning because they don't experience this. I don't know. It's a good question because a lot of homes aren't also heated very well. If I understand correctly, the homes are built pretty cheaply and don't have a whole, they don't have insulation. So there's not a whole lot of heat going on. Therefore, you have things like lap blankets or kerosene heaters or. Is there a lap cooling blanket? Does that exist? I don't know. Should look. But there is a big like. Yeah, there's a big. I think we just got our our funding. (laughs) I will invent the lap the official lap cooling blanket for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. You know what I have that I have to bring with me is this, it's a little, it's kind of like a kerchief, but, or a scarf that goes around your neck, but it's not long. It's a tube. It's a tube of gel and you soak that in water and the the gel absorbs all the water and it cools you off while you wear it. It keeps your neck cool. Oh, Okay, so I'll break out the sewing machine and I'll make you like something snazzy to put an ice pack and you can wear it. Okay. Just like Lou has to keep the batteries on his belly to keep them warm. Right. At the Winter Olympics. <laughs> we'll, a little we'll make you like a belt with ice packs in it, but it'll be stylish and it'll keep you cool. Yet another funding idea for us. <laughs> The Olympic Fever official Tokyo 20 cooling belt. I like it. I think it would work, actually. It it, it probably would. Today, we welcome to the show Olympian John McLeod. John represented Canada in water polo at the 1976 Olympics, but we're not talking about that today. Today, we're talking about his other project, which he is a producer of a documentary series called Beyond Bronze, Silver, and Gold, which tells the amazing backstories of Olympians. We talked with him about his series, how it developed, and what's in store for it. Take a listen. John, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us about this project, because it's really interesting. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me. And it was sort of an aha moment when I was speaking with a U.S. Olympic swimmer at the swimming pool that I still swim at. And we were discussing uh, an Olympian that we both knew of. And and, uh, as we were wrapping up, he said, gee, I wonder what ever happened to that guy. And I thought, wow, that uh, this athlete has an amazing story and we should never say whatever happened to that guy. And so having been an Olympic fan for many, many years, I decided that I would start to research some stories that I already knew about. And uh, over the course of six, eight months, formulated the plan to put together a documentary series based on Olympians who were not necessarily medalists or in the limelight, but just have these uh, inspiring and compelling stories that the world doesn't know about. And why did you choose to tell their stories via film? Well, it's not a medium that I have any background of other than a love for. I've been just, a, as I said, a huge fan of the Olympics, but also a huge fan of the Olympic director, Bud Greenspan, who did so many famous uh, Olympic films. And I just thought, 
again, that uh, the best way to get these stories told was through that medium. Okay, so with no background, like how did you go about trying to figure out how to do this and actually put together a product? Because we, we have this on the audio side, too. We don't have audio backgrounds, but somehow we're producing a podcast every week. <laughs> well, you know, some of my business background, having spent years sort of uh, managing a business for other people or managing my own business, uh, you know, I know how to work numbers and put budgets together. And I was fortunate that I have a couple of friends who have been working in the film and entertainment industry. And I ran the project by them and they were very supportive of the project and offered their assistance in the form of a mentorship. And uh, so I have leaned on both of them whenever I have a question, although I try not to call too often because I don't want to make them think, God, what have I gotten myself into? So I've been able to figure out most of it, but just their support for the project has been huge. So I've been fortunate to have that. Talk to us about some of the stories you've done so far. Well, uh, the first story I did was 1972 Olympian uh, Stephen Genter, who was a swimmer, mid-distance swimmer for the USA team. And Steve is had a reputation for being a character throughout his age group and collegiate swimming days and made the Olympic team in two individual races and a relay. So he uh, was uh, entered in the 200-meter freestyle and the 400-meter freestyle and then the 4-by-200-meter uh, freestyle relay. And six days prior to his first race, the 200-meter freestyle, Steve suffered a collapsed lung. He checked himself into a German hospital. The doctors had to insert a tube into his chest. He took no pain medication other than some topical anesthetic, then was able to sort of relieve the pressure that had built up inside his chest, his lung reinflated. He did tell me that uh, when they removed the tube five days later, that he had four big Germans holding him down because that was the more painful of the, the most painful of any of the part of the whole episode. And he said he was up on his elbows and heels as they were removing the tubes. Also, the doctors allowed him to swim, but said, you know, we want at least a couple of doctors on the pool deck should anything happen. And so Steve qualified for the finals. And uh, I, I think I'll leave it there. Right, because the tra <laughs> uh, we, we were watching the trailers earlier and it's such a compelling story. And, and even like I know I can go and look up what happened, but by golly, the way you tell it in these trailers, it is so riveting and fascinating that I've, I'm really looking forward to seeing the whole whole piece. Well, thank you. You know, a big part of it is the fact that it is the Olympics that Mark Spitz was chasing seven gold medals and, and who, if anyone, was going to get in his way of accomplishing that. So, uh, and Steve definitely played a part in that story, both as a teammate and as a competitor. And 
you know, the one thing that Mark Spitz did tell me was that he would not have been able to accomplish what he accomplished if it were not for people like Steve Genter that just went above and beyond to compete and try to beat him, which pushed Mark Spitz. So so uh, Steve's story is one of the ones you've done. You also have a story about one of your teammates from the water polo team. Yes, his name is Gabor Chapregi. Gabor was born in Budapest, Hungary. And really, Gabor is just an incredibly intelligent man and, and free thinker. And living behind the Iron Curtain and the oppression that took place, he just uh, was not how he wanted to live his life and grow up. So at the age of 18, he and a friend traveled to northern Yugoslavia. When the Iron Curtain was up, you could travel, you could require or request a uh, visa to travel to other Iron Curtain countries, but you couldn't come out from behind the Iron Curtain. So he traveled to a little seaside town in northern Yugoslavia uh, with his friend. His friend ultimately chickened out and went back to uh, Hungary, but Gabor waited until darkness and then waded into the water and very quietly swam through the evening, dodging patrol boats and whatever creatures were stalking him under the water and walked out on a beach in Trieste, Italy. Uh, he told me that he actually had to do a couple of course corrections that he initially started to come ashore where there was a cliff. And so he had to sort of go back out into deeper water and swim around that area and find a beach. And once he landed in Trieste, Italy, he went into a uh, police station and turned himself in and asked for asylum. He was put into a refugee camp for uh, about a year and then was uh, sponsored to come to Canada by a distant uncle. And so he took a long boat ride from Italy to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then took a train from Halifax to Quebec City and didn't speak any English, didn't speak any French, and uh, now is the uh, president of a French-speaking university in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And even more amazing to me was not so many years later was on the Canadian national team. I mean, if this was 68, by 76, he was competing for Canada on the national team. Correct. He definitely made his mark at the university in Quebec City, where he was taking some classes and had uh, joined the swim team and uh, helped start a water polo program in Quebec City as well. And the sport of water polo really has a, a great history in the country of Hungary. And uh, it's probably one of the top sports second to European football, soccer. And so Gabor had been playing water polo for quite some time, for many, many years as a kid growing up. And the emphasis that the Hungarians place on fundamentals is, you know, second to none. So uh, he, he had a, a wonderful base to, to start from. Gabor ended up competing in both the 72 Olympics and the 76 Olympics in water polo for Canada. He was actually our captain 
in the 76 Olympics and then went on to become the national team coach and ultimately coached the Canadian team in the Los Angeles 1984 games as well. How does being an Olympian yourself help you with this project? Does it help open doors? Uh, It definitely helps open doors and for whatever reason gives me a little bit of credibility Although if I'm not prepared for these interviews, my credibility, I know, will disappear very quickly. So I have really, really tried to make certain that I go at these stories from every angle possible and not only know a lot about the athletes, but know a lot about uh, their competitors, know a lot about what was going on at the time, both within the competition, within the Olympic Village or Circle, and with what was going on within the world at that time as well. It's just as important. So this, this has been a very personal project in many ways. From that aspect, yes, it has been. And uh, But again, you know, since uh, my first viewing of the Olympics, uh, first really solid memory was Bob Beeman jumping over 29 feet in the Mexico City Games and sort of casually just jogging away from his jump and then seeing the numbers come up and him crumbling to his knees in tears. So it was just a really emotional moment that is forever etched. And then to have that followed with Smith and Carlos and Peter Norman on the podium and to see that all happening. And while at that age, I didn't quite understand it completely. I supported it and didn't think there was really anything wrong with it. And to this day, I still don't. Again, it was the times and the politics of the times. And, and, uh, you know, to me, one of my heroes is Peter Norman for what he did and the way that he was ostracized for his stand in supporting Smith and Carlos in their stand. Yeah, that that is such a story that is like 50 years later, that's really hard to wrap your brain around how difficult it was for those athletes and what they faced for that action. Yes. Yeah. It just, uh, you know, it, any opportunity that can help promote what they did and, and what they stood for, even to this day, in my mind, uh, you know, it has a place to be doing that. So uh, I was very glad that, uh, and the, the gentleman's name escapes me, but the Australian sprinter who discovered uh, just recently that Peter Norman still held a record and that his story had really not been told and that he had sort of been, as I said, ostracized by the Australian Olympic Committee. And, you know, the fact that that has all come to light is really just long overdue. What are some of the stories you want to tell? Who are are some of the people you want to get? You know, I have a number that I am hesitant to expose because (laughs) um, it's my... I don't want anybody getting to them before I do. Oh, okay. Uh, but there, yeah, that makes I, sense. I, I will tell you that there is one story of the story that I want to do next and have my fingers crossed that I am able to do it and that she allows me to do her story uh, is the Australian track sprinter, Raylene Boyle. And her story is very well known within Australia and she has been honored in Australia, but she participated in, uh, I'm going to have, my memory is a little fuzzy, 
It shouldn't be, but she participated in two games, and I believe she won a couple of silver medals, as I remember. She never won a gold, and I think it was the 200-meter dash that she was in Montreal that she was disqualified for two false starts. When the film or footage was reviewed, the first false start was, in fact, not a false start. It was an erroneous call. And since then, she has battled uh, both breast cancer and ovarian cancer and is, you know, still fighting and kicking it. And uh, her story is just amazing. And I would love the opportunity to go to Australia and sit with her and, and have her tell me all about what she went through from every different angle possible. When you look at your list of who you'd like to talk to, do you try to go fairly far back in time to get some perspective on their lives and see what they've done since their Olympics? Or, you know, how recent are you looking back? Right now, I'm looking back to 2016, 2012. I have identified some athletes that are there. The one thing that I don't want to come off as as some old guy walking down memory lane, uh, looking back at 72, 68, 76. And, uh, you know, there are so many compelling stories that have come out of every Olympic Games. So there's a couple from London 2012 that I have sort of keyed in on and am exploring more and more. And, and I don't want to put the cart before the horse yet, though. I need to make sure that these two stories get finished up and that I find a distribution platform that will allow me to continue to move forward. Speaking of finishing up, you've got a Kickstarter going to help cover the post-production costs, which I imagine that this project is pretty expensive to produce. So talk to us about the Kickstarter and and what kind of expenses you've seen? Well, the Kickstarter, yes, is up. And it, if you search beyond bronze, silver, and gold on Kickstarter, you should be able to find it pretty easily. There are some trailer clips there. There's an explanation of everything. But it really is to fund the post-production, the editing, the color correction, the uh, sound correction to make sure that I'm putting out uh, the best possible product that is really going to want you to come back for more that uh, that's really the goal and and to impart these stories the way that they deserve to be told and it's not something that i have the expertise to do alone so i have identified certain people uh, i have found a terrific editor i have found a terrific writer that is uh, working with me to help sort of i call her my stitcher and she's helping me put everything together and uh, then just uh, digging through to find any type of uh, archival material that hasn't been seen. So, and that we can use legally, uh, I should say <laughs> as well. So, uh, you know, but to me, that hunt is, is a part of the fun and the passion uh, that, that goes along with the whole project. So um, I have self-funded the project to date so far and, uh, you know, little things just crop up that uh, you don't expect that will eat into your budget. And, you know, t I had the opportunity for Gabor Chapregi's story. When we were talking, he called and said, by the way, I'm going to be in Budapest during this time. And also during this time, the World Aquatic Championships are taking place. And maybe we could film then. And, and 
I thought, wow, what an opportunity to get a film crew and, and interview Gabor, which I ended up doing. Uh, we have the uh, Parliament and the Danube River in the background, and I was able to film him on uh, Margaret Island, which is an island in the middle of the Danube, which is a, just a gorgeous, gorgeous island, and a very famous aquatic venue there called the Alfred Hyosh Aquatic Complex. And there have been many world or international uh, water polo competitions and swim competitions that have taken place there. And it's just an, an amazing venue. And to have the opportunity to document Gabor there, I couldn't pass that up. I, I'll tell you a funny story that I went to Budapest with no press credentials at all, but had been trying because I wanted to film inside the Alfred Hyos complex uh, while competition was, was going on. So I was. I reached out to Water Polo Canada, who were amazing in their help of uh, trying to connect me up with uh, the people at FINA to get some credentials. And emails went back and forth, and ultimately, uh, I wasn't able to get press credentials. So I arrived in Budapest a couple of days before we were to begin shooting. I thought, well, I just can't take no for an answer. I, I'm a salesman. That's what I. That's what I've grown up doing, and, and so I, I need to see this all the way through. So I went to the FINA media office and told the young ladies there my story, and they all thought it was great, and said, but we need to run this by our boss. So they called their boss, and they put me on the phone with them, and he was, in fact, the same man that I from FINA that I, I had been emailing with about the credentials. <laughs> And I think that he was so blown away that I was there and that I had the nerve to come in and continue to request credentials that he finally said, okay, how many passes do you need? And I said, six. And he said, I'll, I'll give you four. <laughs> I said, I'll take them. And so we had a you know limited time period to shoot within the Alfred Hyos complex, and it was for that complex only, but we were able to, to get it done. So I don't keep too many souvenirs from my travels, but those press passes I have kept. Nice. So lessons learned. Don't take no for an answer and ask for more passes than you actually need. Right. As my parents used to tell me, there's sometimes you need to take no for an answer, but don't give up. So okay, that there was, you go. That's yeah, better. That's better. I just wasn't about to really give up and give in. And I will tell you also that just prior to going to Budapest, I had finally been able to connect with Mark Spitz for the Steve Genter story to do an interview. And so we were talking about some dates and he said, well, I can't uh, do it this time because I'm going to be in Budapest doing color commentary for Brazilian TV. He had worked for Brazilian TV during the Rio games, and they had liked what he had done so much that they had asked him to come back. So, and I said, well, I'm going to be in, in Budapest too, and, you know, shooting this and this and this. So uh, he said, well, I'll be at the swim center, look me up. And I thought, well, how the heck am I going to do that? And ultimately that never happened. But the morning of shooting the interview with Gabor, I was outside of my hotel and a car pulls up and a young lady gets, uh, or a couple of people get out. And then Mark Spitz gets out and just 
takes off and I'm just, I'm standing there waiting for the film crew and like, uh. so I, I ended up, he took off very quickly, but I ended up saying hello to his wife and, and introducing myself. And we ultimately, after that, never connected. But what were the chances of that happening? Right. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. So don't take no for an answer. And oh, never, up give your, up. Never, give never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Just sort of hang around outside of hotels waiting for people to emerge <laughs> right. from cars. <laughs> so- Lessons learned. So the finished project, how long will each of your films be? Well, the uh, original format was sort of like a magazine show where there were two or three stories within an hour-long time period. Uh, And that would be, or say, 45 minutes or so to include commercials. But something like a 60 Minutes or a 60 Minutes Sports or a... such as the HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. Uh, but each story ultimately can stand on its own and is about uh, 15 to 20, 25 minutes in length. And I also have started within the documentary series a little segment called Connected, which will actually connect each of the stories or run in between each of the stories. And it's about special connections that Olympians may have to other Olympians, to to coaches, to family members, to mentors. And this is an angle that, you know, really is when I started exploring this thought, there are a number of very important people in almost every Olympian's life that have made an impact that have driven them forward. And these are great stories as well. So these are anywhere from three to five minute segments. There is uh, the first connected segment is posted up on the website. And uh, so you can travel there to, to see uh, how that, the first one plays out. And I hope to do many, many more. And then what's your ultimate end hope for the the series? Do you hope to be able to get a television deal or do the do a film festival route kind of thing or w- w- something else? Well, I will be exploring all avenues. Uh, and ultimately, I think I will go the film festival route for documentary short. And I hope that it will end up as a series on some type of uh, digital or broadcast platform. I I will tell you that I am a big fan and admirer of the uh, Anthony Bourdain series and the production values that have come along with that. And it's uh, amazing how through the years, Anthony Bourdain's shows have gone from featuring food and cuisine to really taking us around the world and exposing us to different cultures through food and how the food has become not secondary, but a vehicle to explore these countries from an angle that even as a tourist, we may never see. So, and that is sort of a pattern that Beyond Bronze Silver Gold will follow as well, that I think that that's important and that is compelling as well to to really bring in not just the athlete story but what was happening in the world during that time that may have impacted how the story played out i have a question about the title because you had put it's titled beyond bronze silver and gold and generally we'll, we would say gold silver bronze and i'm wondering if you did that on purpose 
I did. Uh, I just seemed to roll off the top uh, or off the tongue a little bit easier. And I left liked gold at the end because it is the pinnacle. But at the same time, the stories, many of us know the stories of the, especially the gold medalists. Uh, the media does a great job of covering that. And but there are just so many other amazing and compelling stories out there that involve athletes that may not make that route. And just because they don't make it to the podium doesn't mean that the world should know about their story and what they went through. And that's really what drives me and I think what the title speaks to. Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about your series. We will be on the lookout. We'll have a link to the Kickstarter campaign in our show notes and best of luck with that. Thank you both very much. Appreciate it. And it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Check out the series at beyondbronzesilverandgold.com. And the Kickstarter runs through August 15th, so there's not a whole lot of time left if you would like to support his efforts. Um, Bring your puffs. Oh, my gosh. Have you? I loved the previews. And it's one of those, like, I can look up what happened and know the rest of the story, but I don't want to. I want to see the rest of the movie. Watch the movie. It is so, he is really brought in some amazing production values. And I I, th- I just think it's really interesting. I really hope that his Kickstarter gets underway. He did, did say that if if he doesn't get fully funded for that, he it's just going to take longer for the movies and the project to be finished. So we really hope he can get it out sooner and to the public sooner. Because these are it's really interesting to hear the stories behind the Olympians and what how, what helped make them an Olympian. And you don't you don't always get that. He talked very briefly about the connections stories. Mm-hmm. And he had two of the polo players there. And one of the things that they talk about is how they always call each other during the opening ceremonies because they had walked together in the 76. And it's a very short little clip. It's like five minutes. And I was sitting here sobbing. (laughs) Just, I don't know what about these two men who just, you know, played water polo 40 years ago. And yet they still have this incredibly deep connection all around the Olympics. Right. And how they share that. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and sob over the, I don't know these men. I never watched them play. I have no connection to them. And yet it was so tangible. Right. Uh, John just did an amazing job capturing the, the emotions of the story. Exactly. And it's also maudlin or saccharine. Right. Right. Yeah. Without pushing it. Yeah. He's not just pushing the story in a direction. He lets it, he lets it unfold very nicely. I, I think the connection story is great for every future Olympian to listen to because it tells you how to walk in the opening ceremonies. Gives you a little hint. <laughs> yeah. Gives away the secret to always finding yourself <laughs> in the pictures. I love that. We'd like to take a minute to thank our Patreon sponsors. It takes a good 20 to 25 hours to put together one episode of the show, and our patrons are vital to providing the financial support, not just to cover the the financial costs of doing the show, but to, to also help our time and efforts in keeping us going. Join in the fun at patreon.com slash olimfever. Uh, let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu! 
Congratulations to shooter Kim Rohde, who won gold at the Pan American Games this week. Was this ever in doubt? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know we spoke to her and I know it never gets old, but how? Because she just wins all the time. Well, I mean... It just a. I'm sure she she practices a lot. Let's not let's yes. not discount that she does practice for hours at oh, a time. She, she earns yes. those medals. That's but no joke. you know it's it's kind of like those elite athletes who are just just have that something extra, and she's got whatever it is that takes her to a level that nobody else can touch very often. Mere mortals can only fantasize <laughs> about. Right. Uh, But congratulations to her. And that is very exciting. We'll see what she is up to next. And good luck to Roy Tomizawa in the Tokyo 2020 second chance ticket lottery for Japanese uh, residents. If you remember when we talked to Roy in our one year to go episode, he had not been so lucky as to get tickets to the huge event that's in his backyard. So Japan is actually having a kind of a second chance lottery. So if you didn't get tickets the first time, you're in the lottery this time. And we really hope he gets something. This just sounds like a bad dating show. It's like the second chance. It's like you, <laughs> you didn't get chosen, but don't worry. There's a whole other pool of bachelorettes waiting to sell you tickets to archery. Whole other great, great <laughs> seating section. <laughs> I do. I really wonder what those meetings have been like in the organizing committee on like, how many more seats can we get here and still be safe? You know, can we put in another area of bleachers? <laughs> can we shrink the seats another inch? So, you know, like they do in the airlines, how tiny, oh, wait, a lot of Americans are coming. We've got to make the seats bigger. But how small can we make the seats? <laughs> And it'd still be reasonable. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, good luck to Roy. I mean, there's still tickets out there. There's still, I still see reports of them happening. But uh, what's what's still going on is the uh, talk about um, hotels and how hard they are to get. And pretty soon we'll be trying to get flights. So we're still working on getting uh, more information about that for a future show. Speaking of Tokyo 2020 news... <laughs> are one year out from the closing ceremonies oh can you can you believe that i know that just doesn't seem right almost like i mean they work for seven years to put this together well longer and, than seven years yeah. because oh, you're yeah, usually you bid yeah know, probably more like 10 in in total from right we want to bid to actually putting it on and then it's just over yeah amazing it's like the worst wedding ever why would it be the worst wedding ever because you plan it for so long oh, and, it's and not. no stuff is going to go wrong. Oh, it's not going to go wrong. They're going to plan it to a T. It's going to be great. We're going to be like so excited for having had one of the best games ever. That's okay. what it's going to be bittersweet. We'll yes. be sad. But man, will this have been a great games. I hope so. Uh, and speaking of great games, what makes them great are test events, and they are have happening in rowing and equestrian this week. So Bloodstock had to get the horses there. That's right. <laughs> in other Olympic news, speaking of legacy, uh, Lake Placid is putting in uh, some investment into renovating its Olympic sites. It's going to put in about $100 million to upgrade uh, the hockey arena, and they're going to put in like a viewing deck over the 
to watch the um, speed skating, the outdoor speed skating oval. Yep. And they're doing this before they host the 2023 Winter Universiade Games. So, A, it's exciting that they're going to host another sporting festival. And this is like um, a, like a winter games for university students. So this is kind of a big deal. And it, it does sound like a bunch of money, but I know I, I did read from uh, Inside the Games that they are putting sweets in the Herb Brooks Hockey Arena. So, so they'll make some of that money back. Right. Well, that's going to cost a chunk of change, too. You're not just doing this. You're adding something that's a little bit more luxury. Right. And so, when we were there, mm-hmm. there re- to watch the speed skating, there's no seating. No, but they could probably put bleachers on that whole hillside or something. Right. But still, it would be pretty. It could it could use some. Yeah, it could use some, some love. Effect. Yes. And all their facilities are so used. I mean, when we were there, mm-hmm. there was like five or six youth hockey games going on. Yeah, they really do. So this money will not go to waste at all. No, which was interesting because did you see the legacy update from Rio that was from the IOC? No. Oh, hold on. Is Rio going to break my heart again? (sighs) The IOC press release was three years on. Rio 2016 venues keep the Olympic spirit alive. This was a big thing about how they're still using the venues, of course, because as we know, from pictures we've seen and stories we've read that not everything is getting used. So the Carioca Arena One, which was the basketball venue, is home to the Flamengo basketball team. And so that's been in wide use since the end of the games. It also held the Street Skateboarding World Champs in January and the FIBA Intercontinental Cup and a Taekwondo event and a Jiu-Jitsu Championship. That's good. Karaoke Arena 2, which had wrestling, judo, and boccia, now that's home to the Brazilian Wrestling Confederation and another institute that was created by Olympic judo medalist uh, Flavio Canto to promote human development and social inclusion through sport and, and education. So that's a training facility. That's good. Okay, great. Karaoke Arena 3 which had taekwondo and fencing, is now being used by the Brazilian Badminton Gymnastics Wrestling and Boxing Federations, as well as Table Tennis, Judo, and Futsal Confederations for training. And in June, they had an artistic gymnastic championship there. So that venue has, this is nice, they have free gymnastics, music, and drama classes in the venue for up to 1,500 kids and teenagers up to age 14 and they have some other school programs and some senior programs as well then it gets to where you're like hmm the velodrome reopened in may 2018 after oh it did two fires in 2017 two oh geez so uh the national uh track cycling team trains there and its confederation is housed there as well. And they've had some other championships at the velodrome. So they had a they had a table tennis state champ there. So they had the tables in the center of the track. So that was, was going to cool. say because if yeah. you had the tables on the velodrome, that would definitely yeah that would make, make for some for interesting. much interesting <laughs> tournament, right? And then the 
Olympic Tennis Center reopened in February 2017 and hosted a Giants of the Beach competition for beach volleyball there. And uh, they've hosted some other beach volleyball things, but it doesn't say that they've done anything since 2017 for that venue. Okay. And they've had some other events here and there in other venues. So, but it, it looks like they're trying it looks like they're trying but it's like very sporadic you know they and i will give the ioc credit for saying this flat out and this will be a quote while most rio 2016 venues continue to be used regularly other venues such as the bmx olympic center and the field hockey center in the deodoro complex have faced challenges the use of the whitewater stadium has been sporadic although it has been used as a public pool and hosted the ICF Canoe Slalom World Championships in September 2018. So the temporary swimming venue still hasn't been dismantled, but the pools have all been relocated, as we know, because we talked to Trevor Tiffany from Mirtha. So they said that the challenging economic and political situation in the country has, has delayed a lot of the progress, but there's not much you can do about that. But they're trying. I will say that they, they're trying. I wonder how much of these things would or would not have happened with these particular facilities. You know, like we were talking about the, you mentioned the gymnastics and the drama classes. Mm-hmm. Were they just not happening or were they happening in a much less desirable facility or would they have happened anyway and they are just using this space because it's available? That's a good question. So it's not necessarily... That to me is a more interesting... Yes. That would be a more deep dive into what the legacy actually is. Because one of the things we talked about with Roy about Tokyo 1964 is what would have happened if the Olympics had not come? Right. And so many of the things he was talking about was, well, this was going to happen anyway in terms of redeveloping Mm -hmm. certain public transportation. It may have sped up. It may have been the catalyst. Right. So I'm wondering how many of these things with Rio and with any of these legacy reports, Mm -hmm. what is truly legacy? What would not have happened otherwise? It's a very interesting and valid point because that's what they keep selling with the Olympics is that it has this legacy and look at the Olympic legacy everywhere. But you really do have to look it's beyond buildings it's programs or our federations now have a home where they didn't before or the home just wasn't a something that was crumbling and now they have a much better facility and can reach more people that kind of thing so victoria jackson if you have any phd students who need a thesis you're welcome there you go (laughs) pass that along On that note, we'll wrap it up for this week, and we'll catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Because I don't want to make them think, God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs>